I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. In 2016, WPLN's senior reporter, Mara Benight, heard a disturbing story from Rutherford County just east of Nashville. A group of elementary schoolers were arrested for something that didn't seem like a crime, watching a fight between other kids and not intervening. Mariba dug in further and discovered a series of lawsuits that revealed a staggering pattern of young kids in Rutherford County being jailed for minor offenses. Mariba's new podcast covering this story is called The Kids of Rutherford County. It was produced with Serial, The New York Times, ProPublica, and of course, Nashville Public Radio. The first two episodes are out today. You can get them wherever you get your podcasts. We'll hear the entire first episode later this hour, but right now, Mariba Knight joins me to share what she learned. Mariba, welcome back to This is Nashville. So nice to be here. All right, great to have you. So tell me, how did you first hear about this story? Yeah, I heard about this story actually right after I moved here. Um, I moved to Nashville in March of 2016 from Chicago, and the arrests of 11 young children happened in the middle of April of that year. And I remember reading the stories and thinking, what the heck is going on? Like, you don't just arrest 11 kids for no reason on a fluke. It felt to me like there was something bigger going on and it always was a story and a question that nagged at me and I just kept following it and a lot of times that's kind of how big stories happen for a reporter you you see something it gets stuck in your craw and then you just keep pulling threads on it and eventually something really comes loose and you start to dive in from there. So as you continued to follow the story, you learned about a class action lawsuit where one of the kids was a plaintiff. Tell me more about that court case. Yeah, so, you know, for a long time, I had wondered what led to all these arrests? Like, what is underneath all of this? You know, a lot of times with reporting, I say like a story that you see is is like the tip of the iceberg poking out of the water and there's all the rest of the iceberg underneath, which is, you know, 95% of it. And so as I kept kind of asking questions and thinking about it and meeting people around the way, meeting lawyers, um, I f came across uh, this case that was a class action lawsuit focused on the arrests and the jailings of kids. And in that lawsuit, one of the plaintiffs was a kid who had been arrested in the mass arrests at um, in 2016. And so to me, from a narrative perspective, I thought, oh, that's it. We had this one big instant, this kind of flashpoint. But now, more than a year later, I'm reading a complaint for a federal lawsuit, and one of those kids is a named plaintiff. Mm -hmm. Like, there is a through line here, and I can tell a story about that. So when you started digging into the court records, what did you learn about the juvenile court system in Rutherford County? I learned that there were seven lawsuits, two class actions, five other federal lawsuits, it, like surrounding this county, all of them implicating the judge, the uh, the jailer, the the juvenile detention center. And I thought, this is not nothing, like seven lawsuits. Um, and also that many of them were brought by the same lawyers. And there, in the podcast, we kind of dive into the story of those lawyers. Mm. But I learned through reading those thousands of pages of court filings that yes, this county 
for years had been flouting the law. They had been running things the way they saw fit. They had been making up their own rules. And that included when they decided to arrest kids and when they decided to jail them. And both of those actions were happening in uh, violation of state law. Mm. They were not following the state law on when to arrest and when to jail children. And they've been doing it for years. You know, on yesterday's show, we talked with juvenile judge here, Nashville, Sheila Calloway. She favors, you know, alternatives to incarceration. Tell me about the juvenile court right next door in Rutherford County. What's her vision for how kids should be treated? Yeah, that's um, a really good question. I wrote an essay that's on our website, WPLN.org, that talks a little bit about this, what I kind of learned after being immersed in the juvenile justice system in the state. What it what I write is that juvenile judges have an immense amount of discretion. And as one lawyer put it to me, it's like the Wild West. You go to one county and it's progressive. You go to another county and it's incredibly conservative. And that is the case. Like Sheila Calloway is a very progressive judge. She's looking for alternatives to incarceration. She is looking for diversion programs. She's saying, you know, we don't make kids better by shaming them and jailing them. We make them better by listening and giving the proper supports and allowing them to be diverted from the justice system so Mm -hmm. they don't get stuck in this loop. Mm -hmm. Other counties, they feel very differently. The judges say, no, no. As, as is the case with Rutherford County, the judge there, Donna Scott Davenport, was very much a kind of spare the rod, spoil the child. And she took a consequence-centered approach. Um, the science uh, that I've read backs up Judge Calloway's approach much more as an effective way of uh, dealing with children. But yes, every county has their judge, and judges in juvenile court have an immense amount of discretion there is no jury in juvenile court. Mm. So a judge who's overseeing a case, they interpret the facts and they interpret the law. That is not the case for adult court. Mm. Now, the juvenile court judge in Rutherford County had a radio show. How did she use that platform to defend what she was doing? That was one of the most interesting parts of this story, especially from an audio standpoint. You know, there's not many opportunities you get to talk directly to a judge. Obviously, she declined all my requests to interview her, but there were 10 years of her monthly radio show. So I listened to 70 hours Mm. of Judge Davenport talking on the radio. And what I heard there was essentially a kind of propaganda machine. She got to tell the story that she wanted to tell about her court about it working, Mm. about kids coming out better. My reporting did not show that. Mm. But she was able to go on every month and tell the story she wanted to tell. We're about to go to break, but tell me real quick, what happened to those elementary schoolers who were arrested in 2016? They all filed lawsuits, and they all settled those lawsuits from anywhere between $30,000 and almost $90,000. So they all went to federal court and said what happened was wrong, and they got money. And some of them went on to uh, be part of this class action. All right. Now we have to take a short break. When we come back, Mariba Knight will take us behind the scenes of the reporting process for her new podcast, The Kids of Rutherford County. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
Before the break, we talked with WPLN senior reporter Mara Benight about her latest investigation into the alarmingly high rate of children being arrested and illegally jailed in Rutherford County for minor offenses. The first two episodes of her new podcast, The Kids of Rutherford County, are available now wherever you get your podcasts or at WPLN.org slash kids. So how did Maribor report this story? And what was it like to work with her partners at Serial and the New York Times? Maribor Knight is still with us. Hey, Maribor. Hey. All right. So your reporting on this story started out as a print piece with ProPublica. What was the initial investigation like and what new reporting did you need for the podcast version? I love being able to answer this question because you get to pull the curtain back a little bit on on how to make the sausage. But uh, I started reporting on this back in 2017 and then picked it up again in the middle of the pandemic. Mm. I felt like I was ready to tell this story. And because of the numerous federal lawsuits filed, there was a lot of paper. There was a lot of court filings, a lot of stuff that I could do when we were on lockdown. So for me, this story started out as a pandemic story, as a story that I could do a lot of reporting from my home. And eventually when I got the vaccine and things opened up a little bit, I was able to go meet and talk to sources and families. But for the print piece, you know, it was a narrative, yes, but it was much more rooted in court documents and uh, in uh, records requests. You know, we filed over 50 public records requests for Mm. that story. Um, But all of that then kind of came and played into the uh, podcast. But the podcast is an audio product. It is something that you listen to and it is a character driven story. So for the podcast, what we needed to do was get a lot more tape. Mm -hmm. Um, The first episode that you'll hear later this hour is actually all found tape. It is a tape that I got through public records of all of the investigative interviews surrounding that arrest of the 11 children. So that I did get during the pandemic, but the rest of it was all uh, sit down interviews uh, that I did with sources and characters that I realized I needed those people to drive the story. And so we had to go back and essentially re-report and re-interview most of the people because we needed it to be a character-driven story. That's the thing that's so amazing about Serial is they take these really important stories and they turn it into something that kind of feels like a movie. Mm. It's really cinematic and you start to be invested in the characters and the people, but these are all real people too. And so um, you have to go and find the folks that are going to be able to tell this story, you know, that are going to be able to be interesting to listen to, but pull you through a narrative. And so the reporting revolved a lot more around getting uh, the kind of meaningful interviews that we needed, having really powerful moments on tape where I you know, really confronted county officials who'd been complicit in this and got them to kind of squirm in their seats and say, "Uh, I didn't say anything. I missed it. I don't know. Um, And that was, you know, that was really difficult, but also really rewarding. I'd spent so many years looking at the paper trail, looking at the effects of this and the money paid out and what the judge had done and didn't do. And then I got to sit, you know, these officials uh, square and look at them square in the eye and say, what did you do and why didn't you do anything? Mm. You know, you also talked to these kids. I mean, you interviewed a lot of people who were arrested as very young children. Mm-hmm. It's got to be traumatic. How How did you approach interviewing people about their trauma. Yeah. um, As a reporter who's focused on issues of trauma and especially children, um, it is something that I'm always mindful of. 
when you sit down to tell me your story, I am doing it for my job, but this is your life. And so for me, it's really important to let the child lead. Um, in this case, many of them were now young adults. And I simply asked them to tell me their story of what happened. For some of them, it unfolded over a number of calls. Uh, for others, it just kind of all spilled out. Um, the thing I always say is it's remarkable what people will feel comfortable telling you when you are earnestly listening mm. and just letting them lead. And so for me, it was about not pushing too hard, not forcing someone to tell their story when they weren't ready, but also to say, now is your chance. Like you are on the right side of history. Um, what was most striking to me was how many people I talked to who still didn't know what happened to them was wrong. Mm. You know, this was something that happened years ago. I talked to a, a young man, Brandon, um, who was jailed illegally when he was seven years old. Um, that sat with him for his entire life. At that point when he was jailed, he said he didn't even know what jail was. And now we are here, you know, 20 years later, um, almost, uh, and he is finally realizing that that was really wrong. So sometimes the conversations uh, were about processing this in the moment where they realized like they thought they were a bad kid. They thought this happened to them for a reason. And then they suddenly realized that that narrative is wrong mm -hmm. and that they've had an injustice happen to them. So sometimes it was also just giving them the space to kind of work through it on their own just with me listening and kind of saying like i guess i guess i wasn't a bad kid but like here i am yeah because some of them had end ended up in prison some of them you know it was interesting because some of the kids i talked to it was a real scared straight moment i i never got in trouble again that was terrible for other kids it was i was a bad kid now so i lived up to that and i'm on parole i was in prison for 10 years what did they what did they tell you about their treatment in jail when they were kids? It was so shocking. I mean, they told me, and there were these stories that would come up again and again. I mean, even the names of specific guards that they, that, you know, they all had to take a shower in front of a guard. Many of them told me about one guard who just looked at them weirdly in the shower. Um, the commonalities among the stories were really striking. Uh, yeah, they would be stripped down, forced to shower in front of a guard, given a jumpsuit, put in a cell. Um, many of them were put on lockdown, which was a form of solitary confinement. I mean, this was really traumatic for them. Uh, I just can't even imagine like being a 12-year-old who's already kind of uncomfortable with your body and don't know who you are and then forced to strip down and have a guard watch you shower um it was really those smaller moments as well as these really bigger like catastrophic things like being locked up in a cell 23 hours a day with a board over your window and nothing but a bible and a cup um, but it was everything from that moment where you were just forced to be naked as a young person in front of a, an adult to these more egregious um, civil rights violations that stuck with them. Mm. Like every single one of them was like, oh, that shower, man, I still remember it was so cold or it was really hot. Like you just didn't know. And like I would jump out of it because I, I, I just like it was always just the wrong temperature and. And then I'd get to my cell and I was just like sitting there like I didn't know what to do. They wouldn't let me sleep during the day. If I was sleeping, they would make me stand in a corner. I mean, the, the memories were vivid, mm. like incredibly vivid. But that's trauma. It's a harrowing experience for everyone, especially for young kids. Now, you know, I'm sure many of our public radio listeners know about cereal. 
It's a spinoff of This American Life, and they pretty much created this specific genre of podcast where deeply reported stories are told in this narrative form that you just explained. Now, you know, what was it like working with the folks at Serial to put this together? Oh, it was like a career highlight. I mean, I have to say, like, this story is a really delicate story. It is a story about children and trauma and civil rights violations. And so you want to make sure that you're going to be telling it with the right partners, you know, that it's going to be told in a way that is both empathetic, rigorous, classy, you know, thoughtful. And I just felt like I was in such good hands with Serial. Like, this is not a place that is going to sensationalize anything. It is not a place that's going to misrepresent anything. Like, the thoroughness of working with them was unbelievable. I mean, even just the level of fact checking. I mean, the fact checker Ben Phelan has taken this to like a real art. I mean, Mm. it was unbelievable how rigorous the editing and the fact checking was. And it felt like what we were making and I hope what we did make was something that was incredibly true and accurate, but also a really important and interesting story to listen to. And I think that's what Serial brings. They don't just try to take on these really complicated and thorny topics. They want to take them on and deliver, for lack of a better term, an entertaining story so that you get pulled in, so that you do learn about this. And so you walk away with outrage, wanting to pay more attention to the world around you. And they were just, I mean, they're they're the gold standard. Yeah, yeah. You know, the podcast has original soundtrack from a couple of musicians that grew up here called The Blasting Company. Tell me, how does the original music affect the storytelling? This was another moment of like a, like a pinch me moment with Serial because I've never had like a score composed for anything I've mm. done. Um, you know, Phoebe Wang is the sound designer and she commissioned the music and she is a true sound artist. And really what they wanted um, was to have music that reflected the theme of the show. And the theme of the show really is this kind of insider outsider perspective inside Rutherford County. This was going on. Nobody seemed to think it was the wrong thing outside. It was bananas. And when those two realities start to meet, when the when the outside lawyer comes in and sees what's happening and kind of bursts it they wanted to create music that actually represented those two realities and then when the reality started to slam together they kind of blended those two sonic uh palettes so man it's so cool like these guys play a million instruments it has this kind of like nashville twang to it but it also has this kind of like gritty like rock tone and um And if you listen closely, you will see that when we're in the world of the judge or when we're in the world of the lawyers, that the sonic palette is a little bit different and they start to overlap at points when those narratives overlap. So Mm. it's just like thinking about this on a level that I am not used to. Real quick, last question for you. Yeah. As this podcast really goes out into the world, what parts of this story will you still be watching in the future? I will be watching what happens with this county as far as the new judge. I will be watching what happens with the state oversight because as we start to talk about in later episodes, the state oversight is woefully inadequate and we need to be watching our kids better, watching our juvenile justice systems better. Mariba Knight is WPLN senior reporter and producer of Special Projects. Mariba, congratulations and thank you so much. Thank you so much, Khalil. 
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear the first episode of the Kids of Rutherford County in full. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've spent this hour talking with Mara Benight, our senior reporter here at Nashville Public Radio, about her new podcast, The Kids of Rutherford County. So without further ado, here's the first episode. It was a March afternoon in Rutherford County, Tennessee, a growing community about 30 miles southeast of Nashville. School was out for the day, and a dozen or so little kids were playing a game of pickup basketball in someone's backyard. And then, as kids do, one said something about another kid's mom. This insult led to some shoving. And then, as kids also do, one of them pulled out a cell phone and started filming. There's some kind of heavy neon filter over the whole video, so it's hard to make out any faces. But here's what you can see. An eight-year-old boy, hands shoved into the pockets of his oversized parka, is trying to walk away from everyone when a smaller boy, about five or six, runs up behind him and smacks him in the back a few times. Then another little kid runs up and takes his turn, throws a couple feeble punches to the back of the kid walking away. Some of the older boys are egging them on. Meantime, off camera, you can hear one girl try to break it up. Other kids just stand around watching, and a few of them are also filming on their phones. And then the video just ends. It's the type of fight that barely seems worth posting online. But that happened anyway, and soon the video started to make the rounds, spreading from the kids to teachers, and eventually to one police officer. And it's what happened next, once this officer got involved, that the story really begins. Because it's what caught everyone's attention to what's been happening to kids in Rutherford County. It's what caught mine. From Serial Productions and the New York Times, I'm Maribyn Knight. This is The Kids of Rutherford County. Episode 1, The Egregious Video. A few weeks after the fight, Alexia Martin got a call from a police officer named Crystal Templeton. She said that um, my kids was on the video instigating a fight. She was like it was bullying and she would like to talk to them and that they wouldn't be in no type of trouble. So I made plans to meet Mrs. Templeton. Later that day, Alexia and her 10-year-old daughter, Imarie, drove to meet Officer Templeton on a side street. So uh, when I got there, Miss Templeton shows me the video, and I was like, well, that's not my kids, this bullying. And uh, she was like, well, you know, I want to talk to the other kids. 
and let them know what they're doing is not right. No one is in trouble. I was like, well, okay. She said, so can you identify your kids? I said, yes, I can. I said, that's my daughter. It's the one who's saying stop to Tay-Tay. That's my son over there. He's in the video, but he wasn't saying nothing, instigating nothing. She said, so who are the rest of the other kids? So my daughter, she wrote down all the kids' names, and we gave them to her. The whole thing seemed very casual. Alexia doesn't remember Officer Templeton even telling her that she was conducting an investigation. So when Imarie, Alexia's daughter, leaned over the hood of the police car and wrote down the names of the kids in the video, she had no idea that what she was doing would lead to 11 kids, including herself, getting arrested. The reason why Officer Templeton was trying to ID all the kids in the video is because she believed all of them bore some responsibility for the fight, or at least for not stopping it. The two kids doing the actual hitting, she thought they were probably too young to bring charges against. They looked like they were about five or six years old. And in Rutherford County, they generally didn't charge kids under seven. But what about the other kids? The kids standing around, the kids egging it on. Officer Templeton wondered if there was a charge that would apply to all of them. So, relying on the memory of a 10-year-old, Officer Templeton took the list of names given to her by Marie and headed to the county's judicial commissioner's office for guidance on what to charge them all with. In Rutherford County, judicial commissioners are the people who approve charges. At their office, the commissioners searched the state's database, and they found a statute that seemed to fit the bill, criminal responsibility for conduct of another, Officer Templeton would later say, quote, I looked at the charge to the best of my ability from my experience was like, yeah, that's the charge. The judicial commissioner signed off. Petitions were secured. Word went out. Arrest these kids. As would later be documented in over a dozen interviews with internal affairs investigators, the arrests did not go smoothly. Well, we'll go ahead and start with uh, May 27th, 2016. It is 11 a.m. Sergeant Craig Snyder, Office of Professional Responsibility. In an office at the local police department, Tammy Garrett, the principal at a school called Hobgood Elementary, sat down with two of those investigators. When did you become aware of the uh, arrests that were going to take place at Hobgood at your school? Um... The investigation or the arrest? Well, the investigation. Principal Garrett told the investigators that Officer Templeton had shown her the video of the fight on a Wednesday. And by Friday morning, Templeton called to say the police were coming to Hobgood to arrest some girls who were in the video. But right away, Principal Garrett was concerned, partly because the kids Templeton named, well, Garrett hadn't seen all of them in the video. There were kids that I knew that I didn't see in there that are good kids at school, then I started thinking, you know, what's going on? Yeah, what's going on? I didn't see any of those kids. Did she mention how she had identified those those kids? She had talked to the, some kids and the parents, is what she said. And so I thought, well, she's an investigator, not me. Maybe I 
things I didn't know. Still, Principal Garrett was worried. It was her fourth year as principal at Hopgood Elementary, and she'd spent those years working hard to build trust with parents and the kids at her school. She thought it certainly wouldn't help that relationship if she was allowing police to come to the school and arrest kids. But she believed she didn't have a choice in the matter. Principal Garrett said Officer Templeton assured her the arrests wouldn't be disruptive. She said, I want to promise y'all that they weren't going to be handcuffed and that I'll be there, I'm going to take care of this, it'll be discreet. Garrett told Templeton her preference was that the girls be arrested before school let out. She didn't want a bunch of students in the hallways or the yard or in the bus lines seeing their classmates get taken out by police officers. But as the day wore on, getting closer to school dismissal at 2.30, Officer Templeton still hadn't shown up at Hopgood. Instead, three different police officers came. And that's when things got confusing. Crowded into the assistant principal's office, discussing what to do next, Garrett said one officer, in a tactical vest, was telling her, go get the kids. But a second officer was telling her, don't go get the kids. That officer seemed to be having second thoughts about the whole thing. So he kept telling me, hey, this is not right. I don't think this is right. What, was he specific with anything? So he said, this is going to blow up. This is going to blow up. You shouldn't do this. This is not right. Meaning the arrest? Uh-huh. And I don't know what to do. The officer telling Principal Garrett not to go get the kids was Chris Williams. In his internal affairs interview, Officer Williams said when he learned what these arrests were about, he was shocked. It was just like, what in the world? He was like, what in the world? Because he'd seen the video of the fight the night before, after Officer Templeton had asked him to check it out. And he remembered when he watched it. I was like, that's the egregious video that you were talking about? And she was like, yeah. And I'm like, well, if you follow any group of kids, they get off the bus home, this is what you're going to see. This is normal behavior for most kids. Then there was this. All the kids in the video were black, and most of the students at Hopgood were black or Latino. Williams, who's also black, said he didn't think Templeton, who's white, was intentionally going after these kids because of their race. But he also said... He couldn't help but wonder if something like this would happen at a school that was mostly white. Back in the assistant principal's office, Williams started calling up the chain of command, if not to stop the arrests, at least to slow things down while they got some clarity on the situation. And I'm trying to call someone to, I don't want to say, use common sense, but at least think about what we're doing. The first person Williams talked to was a sergeant who told him to go forward with the arrests. He then called others to try to get a different answer. He called a lieutenant who didn't pick up. Then he got through to a major who essentially told him to just figure it out. Meanwhile, the officer in the room telling Garrett to, yes, go get the kids, was Officer Jeff Carroll, and he was making his own phone calls. Carroll was a patrol officer and a SWAT team member, he declined my interview requests, but in his internal affairs interview, he said, while, quote, nobody likes to arrest kids at school, he had his orders. I had one our sergeant tells me to do something, as long as I know it's not illegal or in my eyes immoral, 
I'm going to do it. So who finally said, go get the kids? Uh, Carol. What made you listen to Carol at that point? You said there was they were saying, don't do, don't do. Because but he was probably the more aggressive one. So I went to get him. Principal Garrett got three girls from their classrooms, an 11-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 8-year-old. As, we, as I came up, you know, with the hall with the girls, I was kind of trying to prepare them. I said, hey, guys, the police are here. Regarding the video, you're going to have to come to the office with me. Well, the oldest one was telling me, hey, these other two weren't even there. You know, from my, me seeing the video, I didn't see them in the video, so I thought maybe she had a pretty legitimate claim. I don't know if that's the right You said word. this was in the hallway? Yeah, as we were walking up down the hall, okay. she was like, Dr. G, they're not, they weren't even there. They weren't even there. One of the girls even had an alibi. She'd been at a pizza party with her basketball team the day of the fight. As Garrett walked the girls into the office, she turned to the cops and said, These two weren't even there. And then Officer Carroll got very aggressive with me. And um, he was like right here in my face. And he pulled out the cuffs and he said, uh, We're going now. We're going now. There's no more talking. We're going now. And I said, But, 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 you know, they, she's, they said they weren't even there. And he said the three times, I mean, really loud. And he had the handcuffs right in my face and he was screaming at me. But he, I was scared and I didn't want to go to jail. And so um, I backed off. But I was crying and the kids were crying and they were screaming and reaching for me. And it was, it was, it was awful. The other officers in the room don't recall screaming or yelling or Officer Carroll being particularly aggressive, but they do confirm kids were crying and emotions were running high. Principal Garrett then told the police that one of the little girls had diabetes and got treatment when she got home from school. Carroll got on the phone with the sergeant, who told him that the girl could sit tight in the nurse's office for now, but the other two girls needed to be arrested. Officer Carroll then turned to those two girls. I told them, honey, something's come up. Uh, we have to take y'all down to the uh, juvenile detention center, but don't worry, your mom and dad's gonna be able to pick you up as soon as we get down there. Um, of course, they started crying. The juvenile detention center, jail basically, one of the largest in the state, a two-tiered jail with dozens of surveillance cameras, 48 cells and 64 beds. And contrary to what Officer Carroll suggested to the girls, kids who get arrested don't always get picked up by their mom and dad as soon as they get there. Instead, according to the standard procedure, they can be booked, meaning jail staff record their names and birth dates, do a 16-point search, and then place them in a holding area. Inside the school office, Officer Carroll handcuffed the 11-year-old and she dropped to her knees. A third officer handcuffed the eight-year-old, though once they got to the parking lot, he took the handcuffs off because he later said, he quote, didn't really think she was a risk or anything. Back in the office, Principal Garrett suddenly realized she forgot to get the last girl on Templeton's list. You know, because when I came in with those other three and it went crazy with the yelling and stuff, I, I realized I never went and got the kid from, that was in the bus. The kid on the bus was 10-year-old Imarie, 
Not only was she the one who wrote down the names for Officer Templeton just the day before, but she was also the one in the video saying, stop, stop, Tay-Tay. And yet Garrett was still being told to get her. So I said, she's on a bus by now. They said, go get her. So I had already that time, the man had already yelled at me. I was already crying. And um, they made me go out there crying in front of all my bus students and get her off the bus. So I was on my way home. You know, I had to get out of school on my way home. This is Imarie. But Miss Garrett, she came to get me, and she had tears in her eyes. And when she whispered in my ear talking about the police, that's when I broke down, and that's when I shut everything out. I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was scared to go to jail. It was just a lot, and I was just trying to figure out what's going on, why is this happening, what am I getting picked up for. So my sister called me and told me I needed to get to the school because they was trying to take my daughter to the detention. And um, I said, okay, I'm on my way. This again is Alexia, Imarie's mom. When I got there, it was some police officers there. They had my daughter. She was crying, upset, throwing up everywhere. And the police officers told me that they had to take them downtown. They had to take her to the juvenile detention. I was like, you got to take her to the juvenile detention? They haven't done nothing. And they was like, well, this is out of our hands. You know, you got kids crying and don't want to go to the detention, don't know what they're going to the detention, and you got to hand your kids over to some strangers. In total, 11 kids from across the county were brought to the juvenile detention center over that video. One of them by mistake, so she was released immediately. But the other 10 kids were processed. When Imarie was taken to the detention center, jail staff recorded her name and birth date, searched her, confiscated her jewelry, all her small rings, and then placed her in a holding area. I just remember been in her cold and hearing the sound of the buzzers go off and the doors open and shutting, and I was scared. Imarie and five others got to go home the day they were arrested. But four boys, two 10-year-olds, an 11-year-old, and a 12-year-old, they were kept in jail overnight. Two of them were held all weekend. One of the boys told me about how he was forced to shower in front of a guard and then given a jumpsuit and put in a cell alone, which was all standard procedure for kids put in detention in Rutherford County. During waking hours, the kids aren't allowed to sleep. I spoke to many people who told me that if they did fall asleep or if they were caught lying down, the guard would bang on the cell door to wake them up or force them to stand in the corner of their cell for long periods of time. 10, 11, 12-year-olds are kids who play freestag at recess. They still snuggle on the couch with their parents and hold their hands when they get scared. In other words, these were kids. More about what happened once the rest of the county and the world got wind of the arrests after the break. By the time the last kid was booked into the juvenile detention center, the news about the arrests had gotten out. A bunch of little kids arrested, some at school, with handcuffs. 
people were pissed. Outrage is spreading through one Tennessee community after five children were hauled out of 100 parents met at First Baptist Church in Murfreesboro over the weekend demanding answers. It was injustice to these kids, it was injustice to the family. I just, I, I'm angry. The shock spread beyond just Rutherford County. Stories about the arrests appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Daily Mail. Fueling the outrage, it turned out that the charge brought against the kids, criminal responsibility for conduct of another, it's not actually a charge. It's a little technical, but criminal responsibility is a legal theory, one that was misunderstood by both Officer Templeton, who launched the investigation, and the judicial commissioners, who approved the charges. The cases against the kids were later all dismissed. Soon after the arrests, the chief of police called for a thorough investigation to get to the bottom of what happened. Of the 20 people interviewed, investigators spent the most time with Officer Templeton. So what we'll do is I'll first start with having you start at the beginning, wherever you think the beginning's at. Um, well, as my report says, on um, 4.13 at approximately 10 o'clock, a teacher showed me a video. Um, that Officer Templeton declined to speak with me, but she spoke to internal affairs investigators for almost seven hours. And in those interviews, she talked about what she saw when she first watched the video of the fight. You know, the group's pushing these two little kids to assault this other child. It was, it was the whole group, and they're basically all doing the same thing. At some point, someone could have went and got an adult. I'm not saying jump in and physically stop the fight, but they could have went and got an adult. No one did anything. So you felt obligated to, to try and arrest as many of those kids as possible? I did not feel obligated at that point to arrest anyone. I felt obligated to investigate it if the detective division wasn't going to. Okay. For much of this interview, the tone of Craig Snyder, the lead investigator, is what I describe as perplexed over how arrests this unusual could happen in the first place. But to Officer Templeton, she seems to think the arrests were all pretty straightforward. In her view, she was just doing her job. There's an assault here. There's a victim here. Juvenile court is about rehabilitation. And I felt like I needed to do something to help these kids. If I can get them in front of the judge, maybe she can put some services in the home, parenting, I don't know, whatever. It's about rehabilitation. Did anybody at any point, did anybody at any point, any supervisor, did any of them at any point tell you, no, you're not going to do this? No. No one ever said no. No one ever said, you know, Legal, no one ever said to me that. They knew why I was doing what I was doing. So, if, if someone had told me no, stop, I would have stopped. So you wouldn't change the, the way you did any of this? Having the knowledge that I have today, knowing that all of this has turned into this, yes, I would. By this, I assume Officer Templeton is referring to many things. The public relations disaster that had played out on the local news, the fact that it turns out the kids were arrested on a charge that doesn't even exist, 
and that she's probably definitely getting in trouble for this entire fiasco, which she later did, a three-day suspension. But even still, Templeton tells the investigators, If we reverse taking away all of the knowledge that I've learned the last six weeks, no, I, I would do it the same way I did it. This is one of the most striking things I came across in my reporting. The difference in perception between those on the outside of this juvenile system and those on the inside. To the general public, arresting a bunch of children and throwing them in jail for watching a fight seemed, among other things, way out of line. But to many insiders, like Officer Templeton or the sergeant who backed her up, the arrest made sense. Same for the judicial commissioners, even the juvenile judge. Her response to the arrests was, quote, We are in a crisis with our children in Rutherford County. I've never seen it this bad. It's hard to change a system when the insiders running that system don't see a problem with it. But there definitely was a problem. In the years leading up to the arrests at Hopgood Elementary, Rutherford County's own data showed that it was jailing a staggering number of kids. The county had been warned about it, actually. Years before, a consultant had told county officials that they were jailing kids at more than three times the state average. Still, nothing changed. In fact, the numbers just kept going up, which meant for the kids of Rutherford County, getting sent to juvenile detention was almost a rite of passage a normal part of childhood. In many cases, what it also was, was illegal. This is the story of how that system came to be, how it came to be built, and how it came to be accepted, lauded even. It's also the story of the two insiders, former juvenile delinquents themselves, who actually did see the problem in Rutherford County, what it was doing to kids, They just needed other people to see it, too. That's next time on The Kids of Rutherford County. The Kids of Rutherford County is a co-production of Serial Productions, The New York Times, ProPublica, and Nashville Public Radio. It was reported by me, Maribyn Knight, with additional reporting from Ken Armstrong. The show is produced by Daniel Guimet, with additional production by Michelle Navarro. Editing from Julie Snyder and Jen Guerra, along with Sarah Bluestain and Ken Armstrong at ProPublica, and my colleague Tony Gonzalez at Nashville Public Radio. Additional editing from Anita Batajo and Alex Kotlowitz. The supervising producer for Serial Productions is Ende Chubu. Research and fact-checking by Ben Phelan, with additional fact-checking by Naomi Sharp. Sound design, music supervision, and mixing by Phoebe Wang. The original score for our show is from The Blasting Company. Susan Westling is our standards editor, and legal review from Dana Green, Alamine Sumar, and Simone Prokos. The art for our show comes from Pablo Delcon. Additional production from Janelle Pfeiffer. Mac Miller is the executive assistant for Serial. Sam Dolnick is the deputy managing editor of the New York Times. 
Special thanks to the folks at ProPublica, including Stephen Engelberg, Charles Ornstein, Susan Carroll, Alex Meyer-Jeske, and Hannah Freskis. And at Nashville Public Radio, thanks to Emily Siner. The Kids of Rutherford County is produced by Serial Productions, The New York Times, ProPublica, and Nashville Public Radio. If you want to hear more of this team's reporting, you can listen to episode two of The Kids of Rutherford County right now. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or go to WPLN.org slash kids. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. This hour was produced and directed by Char Daston. Laura Boach is our technical director. Live tweeting was handled by Elizabeth Burton. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Tony Gonzalez and Josh Carner. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you Monday, everybody. And be good to each other.